We're starting this new series now on um, turning around lives that are changed and transformed. I've chosen um, to look at Mary Magdalene, um, partly because there isn't a lot about Mary Magdalene actually in the, in the scriptures, but she's a lot to teach us because she was one of those people who became a follower of Jesus, who was obviously converted, uh, delivered from appalling suffering maybe, and became a devoted follower of Jesus. So let's start, it is really at the beginning, because this is the first time that Mary Magdalene is mentioned, but it's in the context of Jesus preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and demonstrating it by healing the sick, by casting out demons, and yes, even on three occasions was it raising the dead. What Jesus was doing was proclaiming that God has stepped into the kingdom of darkness of this world and he's brought the kingdom. He's brought the kingdom which sets people free, where people can find forgiveness and transformation. And Mary Magdalene was certainly one of those people. The early church fathers sort of believed that Mary Magdalene was the woman that it was in actually in the previous chapter, um, Luke 7, who anoints Jesus' feet, wipes the, his feet with her hair uh, while he was at dinner with Simon, the Pharisee. And, um, and also one of the early church fathers suggested that one and the same person was Mary at Bethany. Um, nowadays that view has really been sort of dropped because really there's no actual evidence for it at all. Mary Magdalene did not marry Jesus and have a child. Do you know that? That's what Dan Brown in Da Vinci Code maintained, and he said it was based on good historical research. It's all rubbish, but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we know that she had demons cast out of her. We don't have any other backstory at all. We don't know how she encountered Jesus. We don't know how she'd become so demonized. But what we do know is that if she had seven demons in her, she was probably severely traumatized, tormented in mind, anguish, maybe despair, maybe hopelessness, maybe trapped in that sense that things couldn't be any different. Nothing will ever change. But she met Jesus. She met Jesus and was set free. You know, seven demons, that, that's as bad as bad as it gets. You know, today she'd probably be a mental hospital, or at least on, on uh, pretty serious medication. Doesn't mean to say that everyone in mental hospital, whatever, is, is demon, it's not. But clearly she had a major problem. And I think she demonstrates the fact that however bad it gets... Jesus can still rescue. He is still able to do that. And we, the rest of the, the New Testament, really all we know from the Gospels is that she became a devoted follower of Jesus. It's quite possible that she had, um, by the standards of the day, she might have actually even been wealthy because of this group of women who were Jesus' disciples, they weren't they weren't the catering team. They were disciples, but they were helping support Jesus' ministry uh, with their own means. Later on in the Gospels, she appears at the, at the cross. There are three Marys at the cross. 
you can look it up. And she is the first person that Jesus appeared to at the resurrection. So it sort of means that she was, because she'd gone there to anoint the body and all those. You can read that in John, John 20. And, but after the New Testament, we don't actually, there are no stories about her. We don't know what happened to her. But I suspect she carried on being a devoted disciple, maybe getting on with the work that Jesus had called them to do, which was preaching the gospel, bringing God's love, bringing the same release that she'd had from Jesus, bringing that to other people too. And I would say those, those, that first line of Luke 8 um, is really what it's about here um, for us at St. Basil's, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God and demonstrating it by praying for the sick, by praying for people who are trapped in whatever it is that's trapping them and seeing them being set free. It's not about, primarily about finding a nice new barn, perhaps with heating. <laughs> it's about doing the work of the kingdom that we're called to do. Right, now the rest of the, rest of the theological bit, the rest of the talk is about um, stories because um, Dan said, you know, it's a little bit lighter, you know. Than, uh, we've, we've had some good teaching on the last few weeks about who we are and... Um, Whatever, so I've got about, um, well, we'll see how we go. <laughs> right. Um, for those who don't know, I spent many years in prison um, as a chaplain. I made the mistake of not qualifying that, and I think somebody looked at me and thought, I wonder what he was in for. <laughs> no, I spent 25 years in prison, Exeter, and then Dartmoor, and then back at Exeter. And inevitably, I've got lots of stories, but there's two I want particularly to tell because they demonstrate something really about what I was seeing is releasing people from captivity. And the first one is a lad called David. He was um, quite a vulnerable young man. Uh, this was in Dartmoor. On a Thursday afternoon, we had a, a, a meeting with prisoners. Uh, anyone who wanted to come, chapel group, uh, fellowship group, bit of worship. And we always prayed for people. And I'd, at the end of the meeting, David came forward. He wanted prayer. And I said, yeah, that's fine. And it was a, um, I, I prayed a general prayer. It was, Lord, please bless him, let him know you're with him, uh, that you love him, etc., etc., you know. So, and God bless you, uh, and off he went back to the wing. Then I wasn't in Friday or Saturday. I come in Sunday morning, I'm walking in, and uh, one of the officers actually was in charge of the wing that David was on. He said, he said, Chaplain, what have you done to Smith? I said, why, what do you mean? He said, well, he said when you prayed for him, he said the next thing he wanted to do was kill himself. I thought, oh, goodness me, what on earth's going on here? And um, in those days, there was a, an inpatient hospital wing in the prison. They don't have it. It's not inpatient anymore. And, um, he, um, and he was down there. He was being held down in the hospital wing because he was suicide risk, and it was a suicide watch. So after the morning service, I went down to, to see him and said, oh, what's all this going on, David? What, what happened? He said, well, when you said your prayer for me, um, I heard my father's voice. And I said, well, what did your father say? He said, son, follow my example. I said, well, what did your father do? He said, well, he killed himself. I said, oh, dear. So we talked a bit more, and I suddenly sort of thought, there's a bit more to it than mental health. I just felt that, you know. And um, so I said, have you ever been involved in, you know, Ouija boards or anything occult? He said, oh, yeah. He said, oh, I used to do that all the time before I came in. <laughs> And I thought, ah, oh, right, yeah, there's something going on here. And um, 
The doctor knew about this, the governor knew about this, the wing staff knew it. Everyone seemed to know that when the chaplain prayed, he wanted to do himself in. So I thought, I've got to handle this <laughs> carefully because he is a lad, obviously, with mental health issues, and you don't want to rush in. And so I thought, I'll pass the buck. <laughs> um, actually, that was the correct thing to do in the circumstances. So I, um, I rang... Um, a vicar at the time called Michael Selman. He was vicar in, of Central Parish is in Exeter. And he was the bishop's officer for heal, advisor and healing and deliverance. And I knew Michael anyway. Um, and I, so I rang him and I said, he said, well, you, you sounds like you can deal with this. You said, I said, yeah, I, I probably could do, but I think actually under the circumstances. Anyway, cut a long story short, he came and I got David over from the wing. I simply, I didn't say anything heavy. I just simply said to David that you need to, you know, I've, I've got somebody who, who would really love to, to pray for you. And, uh, and that, that was it. So I brought David over from the wing and he came with another prisoner called Phil uh, as his sort of support. So there was myself and Michael, David and, and Phil. And Michael's very, he's very, very gentle, very sensitive. Um, he's... He didn't raise his voice in praying. He prayed very gently and very... He just explained today, we're just going to invite God's love to come and fill this room and to fill you. Um, and we went on like that. And then he was just praying like this for a few minutes. And Phil, sitting next to him, and said, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I, we hadn't noticed. Um, but he was... David was sitting there, and he was head bowed, and he was sticking his fingers into his eye sockets. I thought, my goodness, you know, I'd never seen that before. Later, we said, well, did it hurt? He said, yeah, it really hurt, but he didn't realize he was doing it. So we carried on praying, and um, again, it was, it was very gentle and quiet, but then gradually a sense of peace came over the room, and it was clear with no drama at all, no mention of demonic things, but he was set free. I mean, he looked a bit poleaxed, actually, after I took him back. Now, one of the problems with prison is you pray for somebody and then you take them back to the wing and they're locked up. And that's probably not, a, the, but that's all we could do. So I alerted guys on the wing who are Christians. I said, you just need to pray for David because he's, you know, he's just been prayed for and he needs some support. <clears throat> some of those prisoners spent hours praying for him that night. Came back in in the morning, I thought. I always get emotional. <laughs> Ian Cochran's here somewhere. He's, he gets emotional too, talking about how God works in people's lives. So I came in the next day, and I thought, um, I hope that he's all right. You know, I'm, you know he's locked up all night. Um, you know, what am I going to find? Because <laughs> he was, um, he, he hadn't, by then he was, he had been back on the wing. He was been, he'd been moved from the hospital wing back to the wing. And um, so I went in. The first thing I did, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, I beetled over to the wing to see him. And he was, he was radiant. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. And what's more, every single bit of pornography on his walls was gone. <laughs> and that's quite saying quite something in, in prisons because they, they don't take any notice. It's just, it's just wallpaper. <laughs> but um, I'm not sure it's allowed now, actually, but it used to be appalling. It's very difficult going into cells plastered with that. And, um, and anyway, and he carried on being part of the fellowship. Eventually, he, he was left prison, and we, didn't, we lost contact. Now, I'm sure that he carried on being a person with mental health problems, but he was set free from that part of his life. Second story, um, 
uh, Jamie. Where, where's Ian? Where's Ian? He's over there. Ian knows Jamie. Um, so <clears throat> if I stop, because I can't carry on, I'll, I'll get him to carry on. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's an amazing story of good news, but it is also uh, quite tough uh, in some ways because although he really met with Jesus and his life was changed dramatically, um, he couldn't maintain that when he got out of prison. So what happened after prison is um, we just pray for him now that God has come through for him. But anyway, Jamie was probably the most violent and dangerous person I think I'd ever encountered. He was full of hatred and anger and bitterness and revenge. Every, every sort of negative emotion was gripping him in a terribly frightening way. But there were guys on the wing um, who saw him as a challenge <laughs> and they got to know him and they they you know they chatted to him and and you know I think he wanted to change so he started to come to chapel actually chaplaincy groups to start with and for a while we had a group where we had um, prisoners several times a week and he came but he sat in the corner scowling <laughs> full of uh, anger and bitterness and but eventually he he said he said yeah he wanted this and we prayed for him and um we carried on praying for him um, over a period of, of weeks and weeks, I think. But he, and I think he, he had given his life to Christ. There was no show. But the only problem was his face was still full of anger. And uh, I remember then one day we came into the group and one of the prisoners said, Jamie, what's happened to you? And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> um, and this is a guy who I was telling Danny, some people know Paul Cowley at... Um, at HTB, he was head to the prison ministry. And when Paul had met Jamie down at Dartmoor, he said, my goodness, he said he's built like a phone box and just as out of order. Um, but that doesn't really work nowadays, does it? So young people don't know what phone boxes are. Um, but, so, but, then, but they said, what's happened to you, Jamie? And he said, what do you mean? He said, your face, it's different. And another prisoner said, yeah, it's true, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to get on the wrong side of Jamie. Uh, yeah, it's true, Jamie. Your face looks completely different. And I looked and I thought, it does. You know, there was a, a peace come about him. And the, that anger and hatred had gone completely. It really, it was quite miraculous. And I believe what was happening was that whatever demonic oppression he was experiencing was dealt with. In a, in a gentle way by the Holy Spirit, just as he, we are praying for him, he was allowing God to do things. No drama, it just happened you know, over a period of time. And it got me to thinking really a lot about our own experience of, um, of how, in a sense, you know, the powers of darkness, I prefer to call it that, impact, can impact our lives today. Part of our calling, um, as I said earlier, is to cast out demons. I said, well, hang on, what, what does that mean within, our, within the context of our lives here? And if you delve a bit into the scriptures, you'll see, you'll see things like this. Jesus saying that the devil's the father of lies. He's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Well, I think we can relate to that because we see that in other people's lives. And maybe we have encountered in our own lives that we believe the lies of the enemy. 
We know that Peter says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Then Paul says something really, I find really interesting. Um, he says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger's all right. Anger's appropriate in the right place. But don't let the sun go down, your ang- uh, go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Isn't that interesting? He's saying that anger, if you nurse that anger, maybe it becomes lack of, you know, not forgiving. Maybe it becomes resentment. You're giving the devil a foothold. And actually, he only needs a toehold. If you're a climber, you know, you only need to get your toe on. Um, are we giving the devil a foothold by refusing to forgive or nursing a grudge, bearing some sort of resentment? It's dangerous stuff. And then, um, uh, because then Paul uh, backs it up, really, by saying, this is in 2 Corinthians, what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The devil has schemes. The schemes are to to trap us, to cause us to lose that sense of love and freedom and joy. He doesn't want us to be set free. He wants us to believe his lies. And so we have to ask ourselves, I think, am I allowing any sort of foothold for the devil in my life? And that's a scary thought. It's not just anger. It's, it's fear and anxiety that can grip you. It may be shame. One more story. I remember a lady in a, when, long ago when I was in a, a parish. Uh, she was a new mum, and uh, she was anxious. It's, Anxiety is, a, is a, a normal experience, I'm sure. You've got a small baby, you've never had a baby before, you've got all the, the sort of worries and what's the, what, does, what does that crying indicate and all those things. But this had gone beyond that. She knew the Lord, she was a Christian, she knew that, you know, she didn't, she, she, felt, she felt more a fear and a dread that something was going to happen. She was finding it hard to enjoy having a child. Maybe it was postnatal depression. I don't know. But what she was experiencing was beyond the level of just a normal anxiety that you might, might feel. And she came forward for prayer. And it, it, was, a, it was a sense that um, she was really bound up by it. And so we prayed. Again, there was no big, big prayers. It was really, Lord... Um, you know, bring your light into this darkness, this darkness of fear, and commanding the fear to go, saying, you know, perfect love casts out fear. And I proclaimed this over her and spoke God's peace and love and light, and it completely lifted. And she's all, I'm sure she carried on being anxious in the normal way, but she'd lost that fear and dread. I think that was like... The old devil breathing his, you know, he, doesn't, he didn't cause the anxiety, but it's like he, he magnifies it, he exploits on our feelings till they become then a level at which we are then bound and we lose, uh, we lose any joy we have in the Lord. He's a thief, he comes to steal, kill, destroy. 
So I think my time is probably up. Dan's, Dan's not looking at me too much, but coming up to half past, <laughs> nearly half past. So uh, I just want to finish now with a prayer. Dan uh, prayed, um, said at the beginning, that um, why are we here? You know, why are we here? Uh, maybe we should ask ourselves now, is now that we are here, it doesn't matter how we got here, now that we are here, um, Lord, is there something you want to do in my life? And I know we've already prayed. But so let's just close with a, with a prayer. And let's just a, another bit of peace and quiet and allow God to speak into our hearts. So Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you've come to set the captives free and that you've done that in amazing ways. And we want to see more of it, Lord. We want to not only proclaim the good news of your love, the kingdom of God has come, but we want to see you setting captives free, Lord. We want to see you healing the sick. We want to see people whose lives are, are just being destroyed by so many things completely come into the kingdom of love and light. So, Lord, we ask now, we ask now that you would search our hearts. We don't want there to be any barriers to our ministering to other people. So, Lord, will you show us now if, there's, if we've allowed any foothold, any toehold into our lives? Is there someone we need to forgive? Is there a, a resentment that needs to be just dealt with? Is there a sense of shame hanging over us? Lord, we come to you and we want to confess that we don't always trust you, Lord. Sometimes we allow small sins to grow. Paul said, don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, deal with it straight away. A foothold, if it's not dealt with, can become a stronghold. So Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus who came to set the captives free. Amen.